My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined today by Alex Stewart. Hello. And we are both delighted to be joined uh, by Jonathan Wilson. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. Really oh, appreciate thank you for it. Having me. Uh, Jonathan, to those of you who don't know, which I can't imagine there'll be many people listening to this <laughs> podcast who don't know, is, uh, is a sort of prolific football author. You write for The Guardian, you feature on Guardian Football Weekly. Um, you've written Inverting the Pyramid, which I think is considered like the Bible of football tactics, or at least the history of football tactics. Um, and eight other books, you've written nine books? Uh, 10 published, 11th will be out in the autumn. Right. Okay. There you go. What's the new one on? The, uh, John saying? Hungarian football between 1916 and 1956. Okay. So, I mean, you know, most people know of the, the great Hungarian team of the early 50s. Um, I think that's actually the, the real. They're already on the way down. Yeah. Uh, what for? And I have to say, I didn't really find why this has happened. But you had this incredibly rich culture in in Budapest, particularly in the early nineteen twenties. Uh, as I say, I don't know why it was so rich. I've got a, a couple of theories, but I'm not convinced by any of them. Uh, but then, because of the political and economic situation in in Hungary, a lot of those players um, emigrated. Uh, you then had a pretty unpleasant right-wing government as the 30s went on, mm. which because a lot of those players were, were Jewish, they were then forced to flee. And so the, the influence of MTKR, particularly Fens Farage to a lesser extent, in the early 20s on the whole world, apart from England probably, or Britain, uh, was, was enormous. So mm. yeah, they went to Sweden, they went to Germany, they went to France, they went to Yugoslavia, they went to South America. Um, I think Brazilian football, you can, you can see a huge difference between um, before Dori Kushner getting there in 1936 um, and afterwards, I think they only won two Copa Americas before that, both of them on home soil after that, you know, obviously they become the, the dominant power, not merely in South America, but, but in the world. Imre Herschel does something similar in, in Argentina. Um, so extraordinarily influenced. It's partly about that, but it's also really about a, a state with a totally dysfunctional government and, and the impact that has on, on, on the people who live there mm. uh, with you know, many of them being Jewish and obviously then having horrendous problems uh, in the very late 30s and then when the war begins. So some of them, some of them escape camps, some of them die in camps. Yeah. Um, some of them manage to flee. Um, so yeah, the, what the far right had begun to damage, the far left finished off when football was nationalised in 1949. So you've got essentially all the best players are congregated at Honved, which was the army club, but the culture that actually produced those players was no longer there. Right. So then you have the uprising in 56, a load of players defect, push cast most notably, but also the entire under-21 squad was in Geneva and not a single one of them went home. Right. So they lost not merely their biggest stars, Coxish as, as well, uh, Shibor, um, but also then the whole next generation. Mm. And the, the the culture wasn't there. So after 56, there was essentially nothing. I mean, it, yeah. You'll get 
people will talk about Florian Albert and the great team of 66, and it clearly was a, a good side, but it was never quite the level it had been at Ivan 38 when they reached the World Cup final or 54. Yeah. It's inter- I mean, one of my questions I was going to ask you later on, but I'll bring it in now, actually, was um, that many of your books, I mean, they're, they're about football, but they're essentially uh, history books, aren't they? I mean, and, you know, talking about this topic in particular, but also in part of your previous books, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how you go about tackling a, a topic like this, because there's, you know, the football that you're talking about is so is inextricable from the sort of cultural and societal context of the time. Uh, there's so much going on there. How do you organise yourself to find what, what you, your angle is? You just got to read as much as you can and find people who, who know about that period, you know, historians, journalists, people who lived through it, mm. talk to as many people as you can, and you, you try and work out you know, what, what, what's going on. Um, and you'll find that you talk to one person, you think you have an idea of what was going on, and you talk to another couple of people, and those ideas change pretty pretty radically. Um, so the Hungry Book was a bit, in some ways, easier to research than, say, the Argentina book, because the Argentina book covers the full span of Argentina. The Hungry Book, at least, was very focused on a 40-year period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's no magic to it. You just do the research. But with, with like inverting the pyramid specifically, because you, you track, I mean, basically the whole history of football tactics. How do you, how do you, how, I don't know. It's good to ask the same question again. I don't know how you do it. Back at inverting the pyramid now, I've got no idea how it happened. Like, I wrote that in nine months. Because you must have selected things throughout. You can't, you, well, you I guess can't, I did, but yeah. honestly, I don't really. Um, you wrote that in nine months. Yeah, I know. It makes no sense to me now. I can't fathom how that happened. Um, but that's that's nine months with a very kind of rich and involved kind of osmosis of trends in football, observations, jottings, notes. It's not it's not like you've come to the topic with no kind of sure, prior yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's interest. Yeah, there's thirty years so, before that as well. Right. Still of, of living and thinking <laughs> about football and, and how then, it works. Yeah. In those terms, I think you you it, it it's interesting to me how it how those things that you concentrate on suggest themselves because obviously you've got i mean one of the things that you've you've written a lot about is the the tactical trends that occur in international football versus club football and how they play off against each other and i guess there's a tendency particularly when you're arranging things chronologically to see the four-year periods of the world cup as a kind of you know these are benchmarks so let's look at total football or let's look at the introduction of a back three or, or whatever it is but there's so much going on in between those things. So yeah, although how do you editorialize? That's a modern problem. Right. Um, that in, in the past, there was far less uh, transfer of knowledge. I mean, I think in some ways, Inverting the Pyramid um, is about how, how information travels as much as it is about tactics. Right. Um, certainly in its first incarnation, obviously, is, uh, you've updated it twice, and the picture becomes much muddier as you get nearer the present partly because you don't have a perspective to know what's going to endure and what's, what's important, but partly because the, the modern world of transfer information is so rapid that it, it's very hard to trace um, influences. Whereas with, with Pyramid, I mean, um, okay, I'll, I'll give you one concrete example of that and I'll go back and explain a bit more how that worked in Pyramid. So um, Ipswich, when they were first promoted in uh, 60 to 61, so their first season ever in the top flight is 61-2. And they played uh, 44 with the left winger, Jimmy Ledbetter, slightly withdrawn. And fullbacks had no idea how to deal with that. You know, do we go with him? If we go with him, Ted Crawford, the centre forward, pulls in the space behind the fullback. If we leave him, he's got loads of time to 
yeah, to, to, to dictate the play. And nobody worked out how to do it. And Ipswich won the league, which is you know, an incredible, their first season up, they, they win the league. The beginning of the following season, they play Tottenham in the Charity Shield and get beat, I think 5-0, might have been 5-1. But anyway, they get hammered in the Charity Shield because Tottenham had played them twice the previous season and worked out how you went about it. That just wouldn't happen today because managers would, would see after three or four games, oh, they're doing this weird thing with the left winger. It felt like that with Antonio Conte, though, didn't it, when he arrived at Chelsea? I mean, I'm not saying it was that, but it felt like when he started playing with the back three the, at Chelsea. The 3 4 2 one confused people for a long time. For like nearly yeah. the whole season, right? Yeah, and then there was um, a I mean, he started that midway out. through the season and towards the end people started to work it out, but they already had a head of steam. Whereas with, with Ipswich, opposing managers didn't even have much of a day then. It was just three years where much of a day happens. So managers, the only chance they got to see Ipswich was when they played against them. And it's kind of already too late by then. I guess maybe they could have seen them in a midweek cup game or something, but essentially they, couldn't, they didn't see them. Mm. So obviously then development is much slower. Um, but with, with Pyramid... I'd written a piece for 442, it was about 10,000 word piece to run over two issues on, I think it was just on 10 key tactical developments. And that was based on some stuff I'd read for Behind the Curtain, which is my first book on on Eastern European football, about Hungary and about Pushkas and about why Hungary tactically so troubled England. And you could sort of see a route up to that and you could see a route beyond that, but I hadn't really made the links that hard. So Pyramid, was, it was a very sort of um, uh, pragmatic decision. I was sitting there with my agent, and I said, what do I do next? No, I've just done this thing for 442 on tactics. I can maybe expand that. Oh, that's, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's give that a go. And so I thought, right, I've done loads in Eastern Europe. I don't need to go back to, to Hungary or to Russia or Ukraine for Lobanovsky. But I've never been to Argentina or Brazil, and clearly I've got to look at Bellardo, I've got to look at Minotti. Um, and then as soon as I went there, you know, I realized you know, this is a whole other world. But also I found out about, um, in some ways I think it's the most important thing in the book, uh, everybody in Brazil, everybody at Flamengo was talking about Dobby Kushner and how he'd turned up and he didn't try to introduce um, what we would call a WM. I think it probably wasn't the WM as we know. I think it's probably a Hungarian version of that. But anyway. He, he wants to change from a T3-5 to, to a WM. Hmm. We just explain to, for people listening who don't know what a, what a WM. How so it would okay, like? the, the, from the 1880s onwards, T3-5, so two fullbacks, three halves, five forwards, so you know, um, outside right, inside right, centre forward, inside left, outside left. That's been the, the template. That's been the bog standard way of playing. And both teams' formations together look like a WM from above, right? Well, idea. no, but, but they're, they're two pyramids. Yeah. Then from 1925, changing the offside law, um, makes it much harder to play the, the offside perhaps it had been played. So a lot of teams began to drop the, the central one of the three halves between the two fullbacks to make a third back. Herbert Chapman at Arsenal is the most successful and the most forward thinking in doing that. He realises if you're playing sort of a 3-2-5, that leaves you short in midfield. So he pulls back the two inside forwards. <laughs> so you get a 3-2-2-3, three, two, two, three, which looks like a WM. Mm-hmm. And that slowly gains um, traction across Europe, although the tendency was to play the centre-half slightly more advanced. You still a sort of creative player right. in Italy or Austria or Hungary, whereas in, in England he'd very much be a stopper centre-half. Yeah, he, was, he was the overcoat who hung on the shoulders of the opposing centre-forward. Um, so uh, Kushner, who you know, was Hungarian, 
he'd worked in Switzerland for, for a long time. He'd worked in Germany. He takes his version of that, which I think is the Hungarian version, so this slightly more attacking centre-half, takes that to Brazil, takes it to Flamengo, and there's resistance there. They don't like it. They, don't, they think it's too defensive. Um, his assistant, Vlado Costa, had been the coach before him. Costa spoke no Portuguese. Costa did all the dealing with the media. I mean, obviously, it was less than it would be now, but still significant dealing with the media. Costa undermines Kushner after 10 months, replaced him. But by then, having, having mocked this idea of playing centre-half deeper, he's come to realise, yeah, this works. Uh, but he can't, you know, he can't say that. So he says, oh, I've come up with this new thing, the diagonal. <laughs> and so if you, if you think of a WM as having a square of two holding midfielders and two attacking midfielders, so the 3-2-2-3, three, two, two, three, that 2-2 two, two square, he just slightly flips it. So one of the two halves is slightly deeper, one of the two inside forwards is slightly more advanced. And that's sort of the, the crucial halfway house to getting to a 4-2-4. So um, people in Brazil talk about Kushner as being, yeah, he's the man who, who invented Brazilian football. He's the man who, who took it to, to a new level. He made it better than Argentina and Uruguay, who had been dominant until then. Mm. So I, was, uh, the, I, um, I remember talking to Roberto Asaf, who's this you know, very, um, very good historian of Flamengo. You know, anything about Flamengo, go to Roberto Asaf, whatever he said. And he, you know, he said, I've, I've tried to find who this, well, they called him Kushner, which is the problem. Trying to find who this guy, Dobby Kushner, was. He'd written to the FAs of Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia. Um, you know, it's pretty obviously a Central European name, uh, Germany, Austria, and they'd all written back up and I've never heard of him, sorry. And then a mate of mine in Budapest said, are you sure it's Kushner and not Kushner, that the R and the U have become inverted? Mm. And as soon as I looked up Doi Kushner, you find he played for MTKR in this great team I was, I was talking about earlier that, that was so influential. And then you realise, okay, not merely did he play for MTKR, not merely have we tracked down this guy who played five internationals for Hungary, but also his coach, MTKR, certainly the end of the war and, and the, um, yeah, so, yeah, 17, 18, uh, was Jimmy Hogan, uh, this great English coach who had a huge influence on Austrian football, on German football. And so you then realise, okay, Hogan, who's renowned as being the sort of father of, of Central European football, also his ideas are then transmitted to Brazil by Kushner. Kushner. Mm. So Hogan is sort of the grandfather of, of Brazilian football. And once I start thinking like that, you just draw a family tree and the whole it's thing... It's almost genealogy, sort of, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, the whole thing sort of falls into place. But once you get up to the sort of the 70s and 80s, those uh, conduits of knowledge are much harder to pinpoint. Right. What does it feel like when you uh, make a discovery? I mean, presumably no one else at the time when you were writing that knew that. What does it feel I'm like when sure you I'm pretty sure they didn't, out? yeah. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, yeah, that's, was a, that, that's the whole point of doing it. It's a great, amazing, amazing right? feeling. Yeah. Well, because this, this, you sort of think, Christ, that, that's it. It's a secret And then, of the you, then you have that immediate doubt, well, hang on. Yeah. Somebody else must have noticed this. <laughs> Um, there's a similar thing. I, I was, um, I was remember I was on a, I was on a train going from Newcastle to, um, I think Manchester anyway, going across the Pennines and uh, it was a points failure between Durham and Darlington. And while I was reading through my chapter on, on Charles Reap, I, I noticed the, the enormous flaw in his stats and it was, you know, a real sort of eureka moment. And I want to sort of kind of, yeah, go down the train carriage and go, look, look at this, he's wrong. I can prove he's wrong. At least but 10 people would have cared. But at the same time, doubt going, well, hang on, he was published in the Royal Statistical Journal. How do people not notice this? Um, <laughs> and actually, some, somebody who worked with Reap, 
as I think written the paper, he emailed me two days ago to tell me he was rubbishing my claims. So like, there's still reap loyalists who think I'm wrong. And maybe I am. Yeah, I'm not a statistician, <laughs> but... It's an interesting thing that you say about the, these connections that exist and, and, and influence and also the speed of the transmission of information. Because I've, I've looked uh, a little bit at, at German coaches, but recent ones, and you can see kind of trains of influence with people like Wolfgang Frank and Ralph Ranick that then spread out through Klopp and then into people like Nagelsmann and Tedesco. And you, and you can see these kind of patterns. But it seems like people aren't interested in discussing those particularly, where maybe because... Because everything is now instantaneous, because you can pull up, you know, such and such as tactical idea off some blog, or or it's about highlights clips, or it's about the 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 way of thinking about football, looking for those trajectories through tactical developments or whatever. It, it's not as interesting now as perhaps it was when you did it ten years ago, because people want they want the instant, they want they don't want to think about it as richly and deeply because of the way that we're now kind of, I suppose, encouraged through social media, particularly to, to look at stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that many people were doing that 10 years ago. I think kind of, I was very fortunate. I caught the wave when it was coming and it's kind of, once you've done it, what's the next stage? And you, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, well, I know I found as I, as I rewrote that I, I got stuff wrong or the stuff I could, could have clarified was extra detail I could add. But, um, I mean, yeah, that, that South German school, you're talking about i think that's actually a rare example now where you do have this sort of school that develops which was partly influenced by you know rangnick had seen lobanovsky uh you know which used to take dynamo kiev to to train in east germany so rangnick was influenced in in that way i think frank was quite influenced by videos of, of rigo saki mm, yes uh so you have these you know these two sort of high priests of pressing and they you know their, their influences come together in southern germany and klopp emerges from that school but i, I i'm not sure how many schools are like that I and mean, i guess you can say there's a there's a post grief school um of which you know the the last book uh the Barcelona legacy is about that that great sort of collection of of coaching talent you find at barcelona in the in the late 90s maybe um the sort of post bielsa coaches but i think once you've sort of said look this is this is what's going on this is what's happened um i'm not really sure where you then take that so do you need uh, to wait twenty years? Yeah, I mean that's that's the other thing because we don't know what what this is going to su- going to yeah. survive. Um, I mean, you know, Rangnick is, is I think a, a fascinating case in somebody who I think he himself struggles with the pressure of being a coach, but he's clearly a profoundly influential thinker. And I think he you know, with with Red Bull, he sort of happily found the, the right role for him, which is as a sort of sporting director rather than necessarily a coach. Um, but but again, I mean. Once you've isolated that, what what's what's the follow up? Where do you, where do you go next? So I'm not I'm not sure if people aren't interested in it. I think it's just that it's a it's a sort of it's a journalistic cul-de-sac. You know, with journalism, you're always thinking about what's the follow up, what's the next stage, what do I do next? And maybe with that, that 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 isn't so possible. If you look at inverting the pyramid, though, for me personally, as somebody who who read it quite early and was quite influenced by it, as you could probably tell by the stuff that I'm doing now. I wouldn't view that as a work of journalism. I, I'd view that as a work of historical writing. And I, I kind of I wonder whether you as as an author who straddles both 
you know, who's sort of a long form writer in terms of book material, which I think is is history that happens to be about football, but also a, a football journalist who is under pressure to kind of churn pieces out fairly regularly and, and keep a, a, a presence and pay the bills and all of those things. What's the tension there in terms of, of how you go about interrogating these things? Something might, something might be a journalistic cul-de-sac, but is actually a very rich source for a deeper, longer historical interrogation. Yeah, possibly. And, and you know, I, I mean, I know what you mean about attention. I, that's not, that's not how I sort of experience it day to day. You know, I, I enjoy doing both. You know, I kind of, um, I, 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 I would do the, as a loaded term. I, ju- I just mean that they are two distinct, yeah, they are two distinct forms things. of writing with, dis- but, with distinct know, I, aims. I enjoy them both. Yeah. And I'd be very reluctant to only do one of them. Um, Which one would you though, if we forced you to pick? <laughs> <laughs> well, the older I get, the more I just want to do the long form stuff. Um, but the day, the very rare days when you know, you you get up in the morning and you 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 know you nail your column for the day within sort of forty five minutes and it plops out in one kind of mm. beautiful smooth pellet, um, which you do fairly regularly. To be fair, I mean, you know, I don't want yeah. to, uh, I don't want to be too. It happens maybe once every two years, but it's a beautiful feeling when it does happen. I've got a quote here of something you wrote very recently, which I thought was, uh, I was going to bring it up later. In fact, I will. Let's save, let's save that for later. I'll be, I'll be nice later. Uh, I mean, there's I also to... the stuff that you kind of, it comes out okay that you struggle with for hours. Right, yeah. But I hate those bits. They're, they're terrible. <laughs> well, yeah, in truth, I don't know if you, you spent ages thinking about this or not. The last four, four or five weeks, I've not been in good form. I've been really, it's been a real effort. Oh, right, I'm doing, I'm doing it now then. We're talking about it now. You said uh, about... Um, uh, Liverpool's win over Tottenham. This is at the end end of March. For I think we're going to release this episode in the future. Uh, but at the end of March, Liverpool's win over Tottenham. Um, and I was going to ask you about it later because you know you're you're aside from the history stuff, you're probably best known for inverting the pyramid. You're the, the football tactics guy, and tactics football tactics can sometimes be seen as uh, I think an attempt to sort of understand all of the things that are tangible within football or to explain what's happened on the pitch. I in think a way there's that certainly is. a danger that um, uh, tactical writing, if there is such a thing, can become quite reductive. Yeah. I think you've got, yeah, you have to, if you're writing about tactics, you have to be aware it's not the only thing. It might be the most important thing about that game, yeah. but there will be some games where it's not the most important thing. Well, and this is exactly what you say. And it's always tied in to, yeah, Physical condition, right. emotional state, motivation, narrative. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's one part of many parts to go to determine how a game is won or lost. And there's definitely a sorry, there's definitely a danger with I think people that write who who focus on one particular say school of writing rather than style or form. You know, whether they're an analytics writer or a tactics writer, they they have a tendency to privilege their view of things and a. You know, one of the things that I find writing about tactics as well is that I'm, it, it's sort of almost like being a theatre critic in the sense that you don't really know what the director's trying to do. You're inferring from what you're seeing certain patterns, but it's no more concrete than that. Sure. I mean, there, there, are, there are very occasional moments. So, for instance, when United won away to PSG, when you saw Celsius on the touchline, you could lip read him saying 4-5-1. So you know exactly what he's doing there. And the only reason he could have been doing that was because he saw PSG were on top. This is early in the second half. And he wanted to kill the game for 20 minutes, which is exactly what happened. Then he brought on the two kids as he ramped up the pressure late on. So there you have a very clear idea. But I agree with you. 
And you've got you got to write. You've got to make sure you write in a way that acknowledges. Yeah, absolutely. That you don't necessarily know. But I think with these newer, the the two newer schools of writing, and by which I would say tactical and analytical, is that there is that kind of uh, awkwardness, almost a slightly confrontational aspect to it, because they're new. Because you know, particularly with tactics writing, you know, there's there's you, then there's Michael Cox, and then there's a, a load of different imitators that are working away on blogs or, or whatever that they feel they almost have to be punchy they have to be yeah well, i think there's also tension there um between uh you know there's there is the pack that goes to games which is very resistant to outsiders and i can i can see why they sort of um slightly disdain the people who don't go to games um but i equally think there's a value in in people who analyze stuff from screens uh, you know, I, I happily sort of have a foot in both camps and sort of longevity has allowed me to be accepted by the pack. Um, but, but yeah, uh, and, and so I, I think because because the, uh, the tactics analytics writers um, are disdained by the pack, maybe that, that creates uh, an aggression that is not helpful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm. Well, you, so you said in, in, this, in this blog that we were talking about, um, I think it was in in the Guardian, and you were referring to Klopp's uh, second half double substitution that he made against uh, Tottenham. You said in cold tactical terms, his substitution made little sense, but emotionally it was precisely what uh, Anfield needed. And I thought that was uh, I really liked reading that from you for many of the reasons that we that we've just been talking about. Because as you say, there, there can sometimes be an idea that tactics or tactical writing is a way to explain away everything that, that happens on the football pitch. And in that case, they're kind of pointing to. Something you know, in, in a sense, you're saying is it's, it was emotionally what the the crowd needed, but that is that's an intangible as part of football. It's, it's not really possible for us to uh, to explain precisely what that means or what impact that has on 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 football. But I just I like reading that uh, it's yeah, it's you got to so, you know, and I think one of Klopp's great skills as a manager is his ability to read moods, moods of his players, moods of the crowd, mm. and I, you know, I, I think by by going to that forty four, low he, he opened Liverpool up, and and Sissoko could have finish their title chance. Um, he, he sort of said, we're attacking, we're going for the win here. It's, it's, you know, we're on the front foot. Any sort of tentativeness there might have allowed that wobble that, that had uh, culminated in the, in the Tottenham equaliser to, to get worse. But he, you know, he shifted the, the, the emotional pattern of the game. And you think he did, he did that on purpose? Um, or is he, I, I is don't he know. kind of I, I is he chained know. into the universe in but some it, way? It, it's um, I mean, he might not know why he did it. He felt it was right at the time, and it was right. So I'm not not necessarily that that bothered about whether whether he consciously thought that through. He has you know, repeatedly over time proved himself very adept at doing that. So that that's the important thing. Uh, ex- yeah, the precise nature of his thought processes. I'm not even sure he would know. So yeah, that's why I find interesting though is imagining what, what yeah. he is thinking, or if he's not. How how that works on what level he understands. That. I mean, I I I find him to be a, a really interesting character, and I read um I think it was Honigstein's rapper Honigstein's book on him, um, which which shows there's a kind of a synthesis of tactical thinking, but also like you say, mood reading, emotional intelligence, that sort of thing. Which even if you go back to Mourinho, you know, Mourinho was one of the early people I think to be very interested in. Yeah, and he was great at that, and yeah, somehow has lost the ability. It, to it's do fallen it. away now. And I personally, I think that's because players have changed rather than he's changed. But you hear that yeah, from he, he's them. changed in relation to the players. Yeah, that, that that's right. Yeah. He has not adapted to the way players he's not adapted, adapted to yeah. how they are now. And, yeah. I, and well, 
Okay, I think that yes, that that is broadly the issue. I also think though that what happened to him at Real Madrid, where he found a dressing room that resisted and resented him, um, he has spent less time on the training pitch since, and I think he was sort of burned in a way he hadn't been burned before, um, and I think that possibly has changed the way he deals with players. Um, what do you, you, what do you think he does that, next? I've got absolutely no idea. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, my suspicion is he, he goes to China or the Middle East and makes an enormous amount of money. James Montague thinks he's going to go to Qatar, uh, manage Qatar for the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a possibility Guardiola does that. Sure, sure. There would be a closer link, wouldn't there, at least? Um, yeah, with, with Xavi's work over there and everything. Mm. Um, Setting the stage. I mean, Mourinho as well, you know, the fact that he's doing stuff for Russia today, you wonder if he might find a nice, well-paid gig in, in Russia somewhere, maybe with the Russian national team. Maybe. Yeah, the worst thing that happened to Mourinho in the whole of football history was Portugal winning the Euros because he, he wanted to be the man who yeah. led Portugal to their first ever international title. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to the idea of... Um... Actually, just, just what we were talking about, the, the one thing I wanted to interject and say uh, when we were thinking about whether Klopp is aware of, uh, of what he's doing or not, it's like you often hear, and fo- football managers or footballers aren't necessarily often considered in the same vein as, uh, as the world's great artists or songwriters or uh, novel writers or whatever, but you often hear from those people when they're asked how they do it, that in their, sort of, in their greatest periods of, of their career, which tend to be fairly short across, across most different artistic um, disciplines. They tend to be maybe a 10-year period. You get the odd outlier who just is amazing forever. But if you ask Bob Dylan, for example, how he wrote all of those songs, he says he doesn't know. And he says it just, it just happened uh, across a short period of time, almost without him really being a part of it. And you can, you can get kind of highfalutin about it and say that he's a, he's a vessel that captures whatever's coming through. I'm not saying that. But I, I, I think it's interesting that football managers or footballers aren't considered uh, in the same bracket as some of those people when clearly they're the best people in the world at, at what they're doing. And is there not the same, should we not have the same consideration for them as a... I think there's a really good parallel there because I think it's footballers is a skill that has technical components that can be practised and improved. But there are people that can see a pass like Messi or Gascoigne and there are people who can't mm. and the execution is what you bring up to that but the the creativity the ability to be instinctive and and just do stuff mm. that that you probably can't explain I think is something that separates the very best footballers from the ones who are very assiduous and practice a lot and are physically very capable but just can't do that mm. and that's that's and I think why that is like an artist well that's why i think that that your writing particularly is is fascinating to me because you as you say you experience those kind of wow moments where for you at least it, it, it connects all in your head and that is an example of um feeling like you're capable of explaining at least a part of the kind of massive intangible nature of, uh, of football, which personally I, I find very interesting. I wanted to go back as well to talk about the way that um, uh, information uh, or the communication of information has sped up over time, because we had a question from a, a listener as well, which we can come to later. Um, it reminded me that Tifo did a project with Liverpool a few months ago where we made a video about Red Star, <clears throat> Red Star Belgrade's game against Liverpool in 1973. And uh, the, script, the script came from the guys at Liverpool and their take on it was that it convinced Bill Shankly at the time to revolutionise the way that Liverpool played based on what they'd seen from the Red Star Belgrade uh, team. And he said, um, the script said that 
because of the of the lack of uh, footage of teams playing in Europe or indeed anywhere else in the world that they just didn't they didn't have the same accessibility that we do today as to what was happening elsewhere so when a team came from somewhere that hadn't been readily scouted it could be a complete surprise as to how they would play that doesn't i assume that doesn't really happen any anymore does it no i don't think it does i mean you know, the other problem you would have with with Vesta in 73 is it's on the wrong side although tito had opened the borders in 62 it's still on the wrong side of the iron curtain it's still much harder than even getting information from you know, Germany or France or, or wherever. Maybe North Korea could do it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, but that's genuinely true. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the only country, the only place where you could genuinely have some new tactical development that happens without yeah. it being scrutinised to death within two or three weeks yeah. would be if North Korea somehow did it. Maybe that's the game plan. Yeah. We never know. Um, but another question from a listener as well, which connects in something I wanted to ask you, is for, the, for your process of writing Inverting the Pyramid, for the much older stuff where there is no footage, uh, how do you go about researching that? How, how, I mean, how reliant do you have to be on what other, uh, the, what other people have said about it? Or how do you... Yeah, I mean, you do have to be. You know, it's the only, only way you can go about it. Um, uh, I mean, with, with Pyramid, what I found was most countries had a pretty well-developed idea of their own tactical development, um, but hadn't linked it up with, 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 with other countries. So in, in in that sense, my job was was one of synthesis to you know to take take those histories and, and and weave them together, and you you are then reliant on them having done the job properly. But you back it up by reading contemporary reports, um, whether in newspapers or magazines. Um, you talk to people who, um, I mean, certainly from from the war onwards, you you can find people who who were around and who can remember stuff. Um, but yeah, pre-war stuff. Is you you are almost entirely reliant on the original sources? Do you think this this might sound like a very bizarre question, but do you think, given the nature of that research project and the fact that you're you're synthesizing the the kind of tactical identities of as reported from a variety of different countries, and you know Argentina with the Criollo style, which you talk about as well in um, your book there, with Brazil having its own style, Hungary, all these kinds of things. Do you think it needed to be an English person who wrote that book, because from a kind of almost uh, imperialist perspective, you know, football is birthed here to a degree, goes out into the world and doesn't just become um, rooted in that country, but also in some ways becomes a kind of an expression of difference. And you then need to step back as you know, English, we haven't really given much to the world of football subsequently. <laughs> so it, it's, it sort of needs... Gareth, come on, Gareth Southgate. Yeah, I like Gareth Southgate, but you, you know what I'm saying, that it has to be somebody who's, who, who's looking at those traditions as responses to the English tradition that then fell away. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but that, that, is, that is true, yeah. And, and maybe that's actually coloured the way it was written, and maybe that is a bias that somebody from another country would, would find and would, would object to parts of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't mean it as a bias. No, I, it, there is a natural bias that, that um, this true, every single country that I dealt with, football was introduced there by British people. I think that's true. But, yeah. I think, but that, surely that's got to be true for pretty much every country. Yeah, but, but then, you know, I'm then looking at, at the divergence from that. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in some countries, I guess that was pretty conscious i mean certainly in argentina mm. it was a very conscious process of what are we we're not sure but we're definitely not british that's the yeah. one thing we can definitely say 
and we were calling operationists being criosho, uh, which is a really awkward term. I'm glad you pronounced it correctly because mine really, was way off. Well, no, yours, yours is, is the Peninsula Spanish way of pronouncing it. I, oh, well, that's I, I right instinctively then. went for the Argentinian version, but uh, in the same way, I would potentially call him Gus Pochette. <laughs> oh, okay. I would not have known that. Uh, as we said before, uh, you've written loads of books. You've written ele- 11 books, did you say? 11, yeah. That's the a lot published, of books. The 11th will be out later this right. year, yeah. So my maths here is wrong because I thought you'd only written uh, 10. But uh, that works out since you started as about one every 18 months, which is quite prolific. Yeah, it's more than that. Yeah, because the first one came out in 2006. Yeah. So yeah, 11 in 13 years. Yeah. Right, yes, I mean. Which given Angels took three and a bit years to write, is one right. a year apart from Angels. Well, so this is the, what I wanted to ask, and this is maybe a more personal question uh, for, for curiosity of my interest in anything but uh, presumably that means that you're coming up with the idea for the next book before you finish the one that you're working on at the time yeah I mean essentially I love money right and I'm terrified not to have money <laughs> well, I was, well the thing um, is like, this is this is maybe part of it though is in terms of uh, deadlines but how do you because I personally find it very difficult to finish something if I get excited about another idea that I, that I want to do. Yeah, and that, if that that's is, happening for you that, every that year. That is definitely a problem. Yeah. How do you manage that? Do you write something down uh, as notes and then try and put it out of your head? Well, you mean in terms of pitching for the new book? Yeah, for the, for the next thing, if you've got ideas when you're working on the previous thing, do you try and get it out of your head? Do you ignore it? How does it know. work? This is, this is particularly difficult for you, I think, because there's a lot of... From reading your books, I see... I can see sometimes the genesis of the next book. That's a very kind way of saying I plagiarise myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's not plagiarism <laughs> no, at all. The truth, it's the truth, the truth like, is. For example, uh, the one that you've got coming out, you know, the origins of that initial kind of, of, of that larger story come from your research into how Brazilian football was changed. So you can see these things being sure, yeah. consciously or unconsciously filed away. This is an interesting thing. This no, might in, go in somewhere the later. Is the, the urtext for everything that follows. Yeah. <laughs> I expand bits of that. Yeah, but you said behind the curtain was the thing that made you think about. Yeah, but that, 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 that's also in Inverting the Pyramid, the, mm. yeah, the, the, the great Hungarians of the early 50s and, and then how that links into Brazil of the, of the 1930s. So. What does your computer look like? How do you uh, organise your, no, your file system? Like, you know what I'm saying? This is very, and it's a very specific question, but uh, I can't do it. I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by people that can do it because I, can't, I, can't, I, can't I feel like I can't um, keep too many ideas in my head at Would once. You, do you want me to answer that? Or, like, <laughs> no, essentially, no. I have a folder marked journalism, one marked <laughs> books and one marked letters. Right, yeah. And then in that, you then have, you know, Guardian, Independent, Sports Illustrated, whatever, and the books. And then right. Yeah, you know, it, it it flows out from there. But we, and what about so I've got head? everything. Everything since two thousand and four is all on the same laptop, which creates some very odd things. I was at Leicester v Fulham the other day. Uh, well, I guess not the other day by the time this comes out, but two months ago by the mm. time this comes out. We're recording this on the first, uh, the third of April, by the way. Um, and it occurred to me I hadn't been to Leicester since the game when they beat Chelsea. But it was Mourinho's last game as Chelsea manager. Mm. So I thought, I can't be over two years, it can't be true. So I just typed Leicester into the search thing. And it turned out that I'd actually done a Leicester v. Fulham game before in the FA Cup in, I think, 2006. It's just like, <laughs> no memory of that at all. Yeah, I guess that Went back into the thought, it's all about Danny Calamari's comeback. And that. Just, just nothing in my head at all. So you've had that. the same laptop for 15 years? No, you just move the files Oh, across. I see. Right, okay. Now I'm always tipping water on it and stuff, but... <laughs> Thankfully, I'm so sort of useless at that that I have back blaze, which backs it all up automatically. Oh, nice. That's a good tip for listeners. 
Uh, also, you've got uh, the Blizzard as well to, to contend with, uh, which Tifo recently teamed up with to create a video of one of your published stories, which was written, I haven't read the name, I think it was John, John McManus, McManus, right, who wrote a, a story, well, the, the footballing life of Turkish President Erdogan, uh, which is fascinating. That will, pr- that will be out already by the time this podcast comes out. If you haven't seen it, do go and, uh, do go and watch that. Um, what was the thinking behind launching the Blizzard? Because it's quite specific in uh, football journalism. I don't want to call it a... Ma- well, you call it a magazine, but I almost don't want to because it, it looks like a... It's a yeah, book, I mean, books, the, right? the, I mean, the genesis of it was um, it's 2010, um, uh, early in the year. Um, so it was the, the build-up to the South Africa World Cup. And... I had this story about um, a South African player called Steve McConey, who was the first black South African to play professionally in Europe. Um, and it was an amazing story. He'd, um, his, his father was insistent he got, a, got an education. He's obviously you know, a clever kid as well as being good at football. So I think he played in a friendly against um, Stanley Matthews involved in some way. He can't have played in it. Maybe he did play against Stanley Matthews, but Stanley Matthews was there anyway and wanted them to sign him. Um, but his dad made him finish his, his education. And then when, when he got his whatever qualifications it was, um, he moved to Coventry, uh, who were then a third division team. And the, you know, the story of him arriving in London and sort of being expected to find his own way to Coventry, sort of slightly abandoned by the club to, to get there, um, was sort of heartbreaking in terms of explaining the, the sort of day-to-day horror of apartheid that um it's a, you know, a story where he'd gone out to buy a newspaper and couldn't work out his way back to the hotel and spent sort of 20 minutes plucking up the courage to to approach a white policeman to ask directions yeah and the next morning he woke up and his shoes weren't there and he, you know he was terrified these are his only shoes and he said i'm going to turn up at coventry barefoot and he realized that the maid had taken them off to clean them. And he, he just could not conceive that a white maid would take a black man's shoes to, to, to clean them. Um, but then the story takes, I mean, he, he, he doesn't, really, doesn't really work out for him at Coventry. He, he's successful in, in the Netherlands, has this peripatetic career, ends up in Canada, uh, where he became a professor of psychology or psychiatry, one of the two, at some Canadian university, moves to New York, and his marriage breaks down. He, he married, uh, I think she was South African, but a woman he'd, he'd met in, in London. Um, and he, lo- he, yeah, he loses the case for custody of their kids. And shortly after that, acid is thrown in, in the face of his ex-wife and her lawyer. And he ends up being jailed for, I think, 11 years. Um, there's a Dutch journalist had, had researched it. And he turned up letters between the CIA and the South African security forces where the South Africans essentially say, can you take this guy out? He's a very outspoken pro-ANC activist. Um, so what, you know, I honestly don't know whether he was framed or whether he did it. I don't, I, I, he always denied it. But, you know, I just don't know. But the story is amazing. And I pitched this around to various people in newspapers, so I'll give you 800 words. Not an 800-word story. It's like, you know, Two three thousand word story, um, four four two magazine was sort of oh no we you know we need positive stories ahead of the South African World Cup. So a sort of raging that this kind of yeah fantastic story that was entirely appropriate with the World Cup coming up, um couldn't find a home anywhere. I was uh, I was up in Sunderland a lot of the time. My, my dad was was very ill, 
And it was um, to one night, it was just before Sunderland played Bolton. And they, it was um, Sunderland Steve Bruce. We got a hundred and odd day run without a victory. And we, we beat Bolton 4 0 or 4 1 that night. Darren Bent scored a hat trick. But we were in Fitzgerald's pub that night. And I was sort of raging about, about the story I couldn't place and saying, you know, what, what writers need to do, we need to, we need to make our own magazine and we want to ignore all the advertising, ignore all this nonsense. And, it, you know, we, we should have a profit share. So maybe we don't make any money, but at least we get, you know, the stories we want to write, we get them out there. And then a mate from school who was sitting next to me went, well, you know what I do for a living, don't you? It's like, yeah, you're a designer and pub- Oh, you're a designer and publisher. <laughs> and so, you know, we sort of thrashed the idea out. And then the next morning, sort of he rang me, I think, or maybe I rang him, but anyway. And it was, you know, the, the idea survived the hangover. You know it's good when you're still talking about it, it the next morning. Yeah, right? and yeah. it was, yeah, let's, let's do this. It took about a year. And I, you know, I went around a whole load of journalists and said, look, you must have a story that's your covenant of a Steve McConaughey story. And everybody had at least one. And so we launched um, April 2011. So, yeah, we're now... We're just entering our ninth year, which is yeah, an incredible thing. Something like 30, is it 33 issues now, 34? Uh, yeah, we just did issue, th- issue 32. It was the last one, issue 33, so the one we're working on now. When you, So I guess when you uh, conceived of the idea, did you expect that it would still be going nine years? No, later? I didn't have a clue. I mean, I, you know, I be thought, delighted. do you do you know, one issue, see where it goes? Yeah. Um, and that, the first night of it was, where we launched, was amazing. You know, I, um, there's a friend who uh, lives in Manchester, um, was down in London, so I was going out for, for dinner with him. And there was a bit of a delay, various technical things with the website. So I was slightly late, and he, he'd come around my flat. So he was sort of waiting for me to press a button and, and tweet out, you know, with this is now live. I sort of trailed it slightly, but nothing really. And, um, yeah, I, I hit the button to send it live, go out for a for, for meal. And I'd set it up so that I get emails every time we we sold a copy. And three hours later, my phone has not made a single noise. Oh, that hasn't worked. <laughs> That's a year gone. Um, and then I stepped out of the restaurant, and my phone just went berserk. And I just there'd been no reception in the restaurant. And in the five minute walk from the restaurant to home, I we'd had three thousand pounds worth of orders, which was just. <laughs> And I was just sitting there for the rest of the night watching the numbers going up on the phone. Mm. Now, £3,000 sounds like a huge amount of money. Like nowhere near touching the sides of covering costs. But it was such a, such a boost of kind of, yeah, people care about this. People are prepared to pay for this. And now, to be honest, our site problem now is we've kind of won the war. Yeah, Everybody does long form now. I'm not suggesting that we've sort of changed perceptions, but we definitely got in early in, in seeing that the internet didn't necessarily mean everything had to be sort of three, four hundred word snaps and listicles. Um, so it's now trying to kind of find a way of uh, continuing to generate interest when other people are doing similar things. I think for me that was, and I, I was an early adopter. I had the PDF of issue zero and I've subscribed ever since. Um, the fact that it was physical made a big difference to me. The fact that you could tangibly get something delivered through your door was part of what removed it from the kind of instantaneous frippery of yeah, and that was one of the very few policy decisions we made. Yeah. Um, So there was me and and Peter, the designer um, publisher guy, um, and he brought in a a friend of his who's now a friend of mine, another lad from Sunderland, who uh, used to work for Northern Rock, 
which is, you know, that's as solid recommendations I need to put him in charge of my finances. <laughs> um, and um, so the three of us sort of had these sort of thought meetings and kind of, um, I, I was saying, look, we, we can't just be another website. There's, yeah, yeah, 100 websites launch a year. Why, why would we be any different? Why would people trust us? We, we need to make it a, a physical, uh, you know, an object you want. So we then had the decision, uh, how, how do we price that? How do we, what spec do we, do we make the physical copies to? Do we do, we do it as cheaply as possible? And we, we came to the, the very happy compromise that um, you could get the, the e-version for, uh, I mean, I think you could get it for a penny. I think we changed that. Yeah, now. it was pay as you like for a while. Like. You, yeah, we still pay as you like up to a point, but that point has, has shifted over time. Um, but I mean, obviously, when you're launching, you can't expect people to pay for something that they haven't seen. Um, but now, now everything is online behind a paywall. You know, the, that model has slightly changed. But the idea was, you know, if you're a student or if you're out of work or you, just, you know, don't have very much money or you, know, you live in a, in, in a country where you, know, you don't have the resources we have here, you can get it for a penny. Um, but we'll also do you what I hope is a really nice object you want on your coffee table, on your bookshelves, mm. and that'll cost you 12 quid because it's nice and it's going to be you know, good quality paper and a nice cover and everything. It's the Radiohead in Rainbows model. Yeah. Which, which I think worked quite well. And I, I think the physical aspect of it is, I mean, there's long form sports writing has definitely got antecedents, particularly in the American tradition. Um, although there, I think there is something in the way that you guys approached more the, the subject matter and the, the kind of the, the depth as opposed to necessarily just the form itself. But I do think what's noticeable is that subsequent to the blizzard coming out as a physical thing, you saw an upsurge, one saw an upsurge in football magazines, physically made football magazines. Obviously, there was 442, there's World Soccer, but a lot of people doing particularly stuff in the sort of football fashion, crossover space, football culture, that kind of thing, that definitely came post-blizzard. And, and I think in part because the idea of a a thicker more interestingly produced not a kind of weekly disposable i mean i don't have anything against 442 but it's 442 is sort of the the tabloid end of the well i mean it it went 442's had many guises um and i i sort of stopped writing for them when it went very much at the younger end of the market i i think it's now i think it may be coming back, back into yeah. the uh the, you know james brown saying i've the ship um after um two editors who saw things in a different way maybe it's a politest way of putting what i think about that um and so yeah i i, I suspect it is coming back to what it was in its sort of 90s and early 2000s AD. hopefully it is because it's still different to blizzard it's still oh yeah um, but, but you know, i, I think don't think what i mean buying the same space in the market so I, I would love it to go back to to what it was but it sort of it it felt to me like a, at that particular period 442 was sort of like shoot but with longer articles yeah, and a and, lot of stuff based on you know what boot manufacturers would would let you talk about. And, and, yeah, whereas the Blizzard was sort of saying you know in in a physical form in a form where design is considered as well as content, um, you can talk about football and you can talk about it in a particular way which works in a magazine that you can buy in a shop or or off the shelf or whatever. And 
other people seem to see that and go, oh, well, we could, we can launch a, a grown-up, clever sports magazine. And actually, it's not just limited to football, but you know, whether it's Glory Mag or Athleta or you know, even people like Mundial further down the line. I think that that kind of kicked off the the physical aspect of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. About who who, that, who knows what influence we had? I mean, I know we definitely had an influence over Night Watchman, which is the cricket version of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, an influence to the extent that I'm on the editorial board of Night Watchman, and and, and then, they don't look dissimilar. No, from a but, design but perspective. That, that's yeah. There was a and, and we're now owned by the same people. Um. Uh. So, so yeah, I mean, we we clearly had an influence over Night Watchman. There's now a, a golf magazine run by Lawrence Donegan, the former golf correspondent of the of the Guardian, called. Golf the magazine. No, it's called McSomething. I want to say McSweeney's, but it's not McSweeney's. That's, that's literally what the rugby one is called. It's called rugby. Is it? Yeah. Um, and it's very glossy photos. The perfect name. Yeah. Well, you, you know. But you know, the, the golf one is, um, is influenced by us to the extent that for their second issue, they said, who's your illustrator? We want to do the cover. So, and the cover looks quite similar to the... the uh, yeah, you've, you've two, hopefully got some glissets next to you. Yeah. Which are delightful, we should say. Who, who is the illustrator? Uh, he's a guy called Lawrence who lives um, really either good. in Sunderland or Newcastle. I'm not, not entirely certain. Right, yeah. Um, Do you have to be from Sunderland to work for the Blizzard? No, but it really helps. Okay. Right, yeah. Nice. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a, a magazine conceived in a Sunderland pub by two Sunderland fans, one of whom brought in his mate who's also a Sunderland fan. Um, I'm not sure any of our writers apart from me have been from Sunderland. Um, and, and the Blizzard was a Sunderland newspaper of the late 19th century. Oh, so okay. we nicked our masthead off them. I see. Um, nice. Yeah, we, we, so we didn't have a name for it. And we just, we sent one of the designers down to the library. Go, go and find some information or find some inspiration. Were there any other con- contenders for the name? Uh, there may have been, but not, not, nothing that was presented to me. Because um, the designer had an obsession with the letter Z. He thought that the, the, the Z could be presented well. Mm. Um, it's a nice Z. Yeah, it's a good set. But that, that is what, there's a guy called Sidney Duncan, um, who I now learn somebody's writing a biography of, which strikes me as being unbelievably niche, but <laughs> best of luck to them. Um, and Sidney Duncan, um, I'll come to the interesting bit about him after about the, I've told you about the, the newspaper. He, he set up this newspaper to promote his own political career, and it ran to 12 issues. I think it was weekly. Um, but after, I think, eight or nine issues, he doubled the price because he said he was selling too many and that was proving a burden to him. So he was trying to reduce sales. Uh, but he, he was a survivor of, have you heard of the Victoria Hall disaster? No. Um, it's an astonishing thing. I, don't, I really don't understand why it's not better known. Um, but uh, I think it was 1879, uh, around then anyway. But uh, Victoria Hall was this theatre in Sunderland and before Christmas, there's this sort of kids' variety show. And at the end, they were giving out presents on the stage. And the kids upstairs were worried that they'd run out of presents before they got there. So they went racing down the stairs, and the doors at the bottom were locked. Mm. And the doors opened inwards. And by the time they got to try and unlock the doors, the bodies had piled up to the extent you couldn't get the doors open. I think 183 kids died. Uh, but Duncan was there and survived. So that's why it's, it's after that that all public buildings in the UK, the doors have to open outwards to prevent that issue of bodies piling up and stopping you opening doors. But I mean, it, it's hard. Yeah, it's one of those things. If you grow up in Sunderland, you, you will have seen the memorials 
because there's there's, um, there's one in Mianol Cemetery, which is very near where my mum lived. Um, and there's one in um, Barnes Park, which is sort of the big park in the centre of town. And so you, I think everybody, maybe it's just my granddad was morbid and kind of enjoyed pointing them out. Um, but I think people would be aware of it. But it's quite a hard thing to conceptualise. If you think yeah. 183 kids. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that is, you know, in a city of, what, 200,000, quarter of a million maximum. Yeah. That is a generation of kids gone. Yeah. Um. So I, 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 you know, it's something that I think, I think I will end up writing about in some form later on. Um, just sort of the impact that must have had on the, on on the town. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you uh, a question about uh, Jonathan Wilson as a child? That's an unpleasant segue, <laughs> isn't it? I, should, I could have been right more sensitive about that. That's <laughs> awful. Uh, yeah, should, maybe should have taken more time to think about how to phrase that. <laughs> but uh, let's not laugh because that was um, yeah. Um, other football journalists that I've spoken to, Jonathan, say often that they write about football because they weren't good enough to play football professionally. Is that true of you? No, I should be a player. I can. Right, yeah. <laughs> you just chose not to. Uh, no, I was an absolutely atrocious footballer. Uh, you play cricket though, don't you? Yeah, quite badly. I mean, right, that's okay, not, sure. I, know, I play it with a, and a deal of enthusiasm. And I, I've had to give up hockey because my hip's too bad. I couldn't uh, turn okay. anymore. He's got a hockey hip. Um, hockey was the sport I was best at. Weirdly, same for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, that still was I don't know if you good, found but... this, but I always got frustrated with football at the level I played it at. Not just because I wasn't particularly good at it, but the other people I played with, it didn't look anything like football on telly. It didn't look anything like mm. good football. Whereas quite bad hockey still looks like good football. The idea that you, you, know, you build up slowly from the back, it's about triangles of passes, it's about holding the ball, it's not about whacking it long. I, I think that's partly because... I agree with you, but it's because hockey is is so much more niche than football. You you kind of you can just sort of play football by accident almost. Whereas hockey, you have to make a conscious decision. That, you've got that to is true. Into it, that right? is so true. You, but there's, there's also yeah, you, yes, you have essentially... to buy a stick. That's a good point that you got to buy. It's one of those sports. Would be the reason why it isn't as popular is because not everyone could afford to buy the sticks. Well, yeah, but it's also because there are far fewer pitches, and you you kind of. Generally speaking, you have to make a conscious effort to go and find a club locally that how plays. Many, how hockey. many sticks did your family buy? Many sticks. Many sticks. Well, I was a goalkeeper in hockey, so, no, I, so had was a, I. I had a special a stick. Lot of the time. Yeah, I became a goalkeeper when I became. I wasn't. It was became clear I wasn't good enough outfield. But I went back outfield when I got to university and realised the college kit wasn't good enough, and it still really hurt. Whereas a school kit had been good enough, it didn't hurt. This this is almost the same as me, except when I got to university, the guy who played for our college was just way better than I was. So I became a really brutish centre-back. This is what happens at kids' sports, though. The same thing. I was tall, so I was in goal, or I was a defender. It didn't mean I was good at either of those things. But I was also described as Big Joe when there weren't any other Joes. You know? <laughs> Did it that hurt? It was a sad childhood. <laughs> it was sad. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, from, from the age of sort of five, I was writing stuff about football. Right. From the age of five? Um, yeah. What were you writing at the age of five? Well, I bet my teddy bears winning the championship and stuff. <laughs> right, and, right. Well, no, I mean, obviously being from Sutherland, like, desperately fighting against relegation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we've got another goal. in from an early, early age. <laughs> um, teddy FC running into financial irregularities. <laughs> um, what did you want to do then? Was it that? Was it always that? No, I didn't know. It never occurred to me, to be honest, until um, I'd failed at being an academic. Right. Thank God. Mm. 
Um, that would have been an awful life to have condemned myself to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I didn't get funding to do a PhD, so um, right. I thought, you know, I'll I'll try I'll try to be a journalist. What yeah. would it have been in? It your, would have been in um, Imperial Constructions of Masculinity in Conrad and Kipling. And I've been accepted at York by Jonathan Dollimore, who was, you know, the absolute ideal man to do it. Um, so all that sounded great, but without, without funding, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to commit to it. I'd become pretty disillusioned with academia. I did my master's at Durham and um, there were various things going on there that left me quite disillusioned. Yeah. I, I also remember going to a conference in Bangor where somebody was doing uh, their PhD on aspects of the medieval in Terry Pratchett. And they had got funding and there were plenty of people that I knew when I was doing mine that, that didn't, that seemed to be doing work that was much more sensible and, and interesting. And it all seemed rather rigged and unpleasant in some ways. So. My neck of the woods, Bangor. Bangor? I used to buy my goth clothes in a goth shop in Bangor. Okay. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, we, we could have been there at a similar time. Yeah. Maybe we probably would have been, yeah. Uh, are you okay for time, Jonathan? Yeah, sure. A couple yeah. more. A couple more. I'll do some one more question from me, and then we can go to the viewers' questions. Uh, the only one from me is: Do you have any um, uh, aspirations to write any fiction? If yeah. you haven't already, no, I'd love to. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a couple of things I'm toying with now. It's it's um, it appears that getting book deals to do that is much harder. Right. Um, but I think there's a, a great novel to be written about Edward Streltsov, uh, the the great. Now I know he'd do this. This would be terrible if he'd nick my ideas. Streltsov's mine. <laughs> um, Streltsov, the, the great uh, Russian centre forward right. who shortly before the '58 World Cup at the at, at the Soviets' final training camp um, before the World Cup, he went to a party on the last night and ended up being arrested and um, jailed for rape. Uh, and there's some dispute as to whether he he did it or not, or whether he'd become inconvenient to the regime. And I, I think that ambiguity is well, it, that that's what what passage to India is, right? It's the ambiguity over whether Doctor Aziz uh, did commit the rape at the Malabar Cave. Mm. You could have a very similar yeah ambiguity there. But I mean, if you put me on the spot, I think he did it. But I, you know, purely because I've seen KGB files where Marina Lebedeva, the, the woman he raped, uh, she has two black eyes. She looks, something bad happened to her that night. And the photograph of him from the KGB, KGB files, there's sort of like, um, three scratches on his cheek as if some, you know, somebody has been trying to claw him off. And, but I mean, that's not entirely conclusive, but I struggle to understand what could have happened. You know, the, the simplest explanation for that is that he, yeah. he raped it. And the simplest explanation is often the uh, yeah. Often the I truth, mean, right? I, I recognise that's not necessarily evidence that would convict in a court, but mm. but in a novel, in a novel, I, I would leave it ambiguous. I think. But. Yeah. Or, or, or any of or all of your fictional ideas? Do they all relate to sports? No, I mean, I, I um, I mean, I don't want I don't want to encourage you to give them all away. No, <laughs> so I mean, I, something I'm sort of working on at the minute, and I've got no idea what form it might take. Um, you know, Lance Gibbs, the great West Indies off spinner. Um, he, he played cricket for my, my local village in, in Sunderland, which I mean, still seems bizarre, but essentially Whitburn, the, the village finished bottom of the, uh, Durham senior league in 1961. And that autumn, the ground was sold to a bloke called Laurie Evans, who was the vice chairman of Sunderland at the time, a local builder. And he bought the, the land, um, from the sort of the traditional, 
Hedworth Williamson, who was a sort of traditional landowner, you know, his family going back generations, because he got Whitburn Hall as as part of as part of it, and he wanted to build some flats, and he thought this is a way of currying favour with the village. So he went to um, the board meeting and said, "Right, we can never finish bottom again. What do we do not to finish bottom?" And somebody seems to have gone, "Why don't we sign the best bowler in the world?" And he said, "What would it cost?" And they went. A grand, <laughs> and sure enough, they I think they paid him a grand, and they also arranged him to get a grand writing a column for the local paper. Um, so he he'd taken in sixty sixty one, Gibbs had taken a hat trick in Adelaide, um, and then between between what been signing him and him turning up the following summer, he took eight for thirty six, I think, um, against India in what's widely regarded as one of the greatest spells of spin bowling ever. Um, so Whitburn had signed somebody who was clearly very good. By the time he got there, he was genuinely the best in the world. And then he got injured. So they were, uh, I think, they, they, I think what fascinates me is it was, they'd been on a slight dip. So they, they, they'd lost four games in a row, and in the fourth of them, he broke his hand, and they continued losing, finished seventh. He then toured in 63 with the West Indies. 64, he went back and they won the championship. 65, they needed a win in a final game to win the championship and it rained. So it was drawn and we didn't win the championship. They never won the title since. But I think Gibbs in Whitburn is a fascinating story of, of immigration, of uh, just talent in a, in a, on a scale that nobody else in that league had. That sounds so I'm going cinematic. around trying to interview people who played with him, played against him. Um, but then there's, there's things um, that sort of link into my family and, and memory and I, I wonder if I do sort of some sort of Bruce Chatwin style. This is true, but also let's examine memory and what might not be true. And mm. I don't really know how that's going to work if it works at all. It sounds great. So I'm saying novel. It might not be a novel. It sounds we'll like see. a screenplay. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of yeah. We'll see. Mm. Okay. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, right. I've got some questions now. I'm gonna. I should have read through them when you were talking, but I didn't. Uh, here's a good one from Shaye uh, Varden. Uh, which philosophy, uh, philosophy in air quotes, will uh, dominate Europe in the coming years? That's broad. So, I mean, any of these questions I ask you, feel is free it, to say, I, I can't answer is that. Is it fascism? The answer is not populism. <laughs> I was just going to yeah. say it. Um, I presume he means in, in footballing terms. I think he probably I does. Think so too. Um, well, I, I think everybody now, I think what Guardiola did at Barcelona has slightly skewed our perceptions of what is possible. Um, because you know, football is now a mature sport and it's very difficult for there to be huge shifts in philosophy. It's, you know, it's what changes there are incremental. What Guardiola did at Barcelona was a huge leap and that has changed perceptions of what is possible. So if you, I mean, if you look at um, uh, average goal score in the knockout stage of the Champions League, I think there's only one season before 2008-9 when that figure was above three and often it was down to sort of 2.5, 2.6. Since 2008-9, it's always been above three. Uh, two years ago, I think it was 3.8 something. I think it was 3.6 last season. So, cr- you know, crazily high numbers. Guardiola is only part of that. Uh, and I guess now in an age of uh, not, not quite post-Guardiolisme, but where everybody has to take into account what Guardiola did. And even if you don't do that yourself, you have to be aware of it. You have to be reacting to the possibility that other teams do that. So one of the things I think you've, you've seen is that um, it's now very common 
for a team to have 70% possession or more. And you look at Optus figures, I think the first three years they measured that were 2003-04, 2004-05, 2005-06. In the Premier League, there are only three instances of that happening in those three years. Last season, there were 63. This season, we're on course for mid-60s again. And that, but that also happens at high European level. Uh, but what's fascinating is that the super clubs, you know, your PSGs, your Juves, your Bayerns, they're not used to doing that in a domestic league because they're, you know, they're the ones with a 70 percent possession. So when they suddenly have to play as a team getting 25% possession, they really struggle. But they do have a conception that it's okay to do that. Whereas I remember Michael Carrick saying after the 2009, 2009 Champions League final, yeah, United were just sort of bewildered by, I mean, they probably still, I don't know what they had in that game, but I would guess it was just shy of 40%. And that to United felt humiliating. Like this is ridiculous. We can't get the ball. We've never dealt with this. So I think, I think it was a huge shift with Guardiola. Um, I'm not sure what, what the next big shift could be. I suspect there won't be another one for a long time if there isn't another one. I also suspect that philosophies themselves are going to become less fashionable um, because more and more clubs and the, the sort of super club model lend itself to this. You know, what, you know, what City have given Guardiola I think is very unusual. I don't think many clubs would, would do that for a coach and just let him run it. Um, so things are going to increase as they are at PSG, where it's an almost entirely celebrity driven, what sells shirts, what gets, you know, what, what, what moves traffic. Um, and your Real Madrid show that that doesn't necessarily work consistently, but it can win you the Champions League four years out of five. It'll be interesting, I think, to see what impact, um, that model, it's not quite the same, but what impact that model has on Manchester United's ability to finish in the top four in the league over a longer period of time. Cause obviously since Ferguson, retired we've seen them fall off uh it hasn't affected um the bottom line of the of the business but it'll be interesting to see over a 10 or 15 year period whether it will or not well i'm sure if they didn't qualify for champions league on a fairly regular basis that would begin to affect the business what about winning winning the premier league what yeah if they that's, stay that's in the top an interesting four? question um i do wonder now whether you know essentially the downside for big clubs is still pretty high you know, United are never going to be relegated. It's not going to, you're never going to get another 1974. That will, ne- you know, that will not happen again. A terrible season for Barcelona will be them finishing third, um, which actually should allow you to experiment more with philosophies because what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I suppose you could have a Chelsea season where you finish, what were they, 10th, 12th, whatever it was, yeah. Mourinho's final season. But th- that really is spectacularly bad. That's really not going to happen. <laughs> um so uh, yeah, I, 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 to, to, you know, to finish the point I was sort of starting to make there, I wonder if you would get a situation develop as has happened with Liverpool where the narrative of them not winning the league itself becomes quite attractive. Mm. Um, and then, you know, this sort of requesting for the Holy Grail uh, becomes this great, great narrative that draws people in. Um, and the problem then is if you, when you do win it, well, what do you do next? You yeah. Once once the Grail is found, there is no point to the Arthurian legend. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I really like this question from WPDWN. What's the worst mistake someone can make while trying to analyse a team's tactics? <sighs> I didn't expect anyone to ask that, but uh, I like that someone's someone's thinking about that. Um, well, I guess it touches on what we were saying before, to, to assume you know what's going on. And, and you know, 
and it's maybe not the you know the worst mistake would be to get the teams the wrong way around um or you know but uh, you know uh, as, as something you could do get consistently wrong yeah i think would be to to assume you have knowledge you don't have i think you have to be honest about what what is possible for you to know what you're surmising what's reasonable supposition um I don't, you know, often it's just a, a sort of turn of phrase. You can say that the you know the right winger got the better of the left back. Um, what you can't say necessarily is that the um, that particular team was instructed to play the ball out to the right more in order to put pressure on the left back. Um, it may be you can see it. I, mean, I remember a game uh, Bayern at Arsenal where. Um, I'm going to say Kieran Gibbs, but it might have been another left back, was injured, went off. Monreal came on. And you saw Guardiola go to the edge of his technical area, raise two fingers, and point to the far side of the pitch. And he was clearly saying, let's not play anybody down our left. We'll put two men on the right. And the guy's just come on. Let's not give him a second to uh, adjust to the pace of the game. Let's, have, let's, have, let's double up on him for the next five, ten minutes. And you could see it happen. So that's something where you can say this definitely happened. Yeah, I've seen it happen on the pitch and I saw Guardiola giving the instruction. But those instances are pretty unusual. You, you can also see, I mean, I, when I look at, at teams, if I'm analysing somebody, um, where you can see repeated emphasis on one side of the pitch or the other. So there seems at the moment to be quite a fashion for the construction of moves on the left in order to create space on the right for a switch. And, I mean, United do it, Atalanta do it. There's lots of teams that do it. And, and that's something that you can, you can see even if, even if you're not watching them. You know, the data will tell you, for example, that there is a great preponderance of passes that go down one side compared to the other. And then you'll see switch passes and that stuff. And that's, I think there's a balance there where there's enough information to say that this is consistently occurring and it can only be consistently sure. occurring because yeah, yeah. they're being told to but do I mean, it. But that, that, that's the case where I think, yeah, you can, you can assess the evidence and say, yeah, I, this, this seems reasonable to conclude this. But I agree again with you that it, it's, it's language. It's, yeah. it's not saying, you know, they are definitely doing this or the intention is to do this. It's saying, you know, the evidence shows there's a preponderance on this side. Yeah, and it, and being quite careful about it, and maybe that's part of the academic background is to not hedge your bets, but to well, express to, to be honest about what caution. you actually know. Yeah, um, and I think that's true almost of all journalism. Um, I mean, I, I for two inglorious years, I, I taught sports journalism, and one of the basic things is doing a match report, and you get students going, "How on earth do you do you write a match report as the game's going on?" Yeah, because what what if there's two late goals? Well, you've just got to deal with it. But if what you've written is honestly what you've seen and not something you've constructed to, to fit the scoreline, yeah. then you're going to be fine because what, you, what you've written is, remains true. Right. Uh, there's, there's so many questions. Just on, on that subject, I mean, I, I bore oh. people with this, but my worst ever experience in a football stadium doing a match report um, was Mali, Angola v. Mali in the Cup of Nations in 2010. So there'd been the terror attack on the Togo team bus three or four days earlier. Um, I was the only British print journalist out there. So I'd done an unbelievable amount of work. Um, I'd, yeah, I'd been doing TV, I'd been doing radio. I think I'd written for 11 different papers. 
Um, you know, I was knackered. Opening game, Angola v Mali. And really it's all about the opening ceremony and the president's speech and yeah, the mood at the game and everything. Um, but suddenly five papers want to report on the game. And Angola race into a four-goal lead, and you think, thank God for that. I can, I can do this. This is all fine. Then uh, a 76th-minute goal from Sadie Kader could not disguise the dominance of the hosts. Two late goals from Sadie Kader <laughs> could not disguise the dominance of the hosts. Oh, God, they've scored a third. And then when that ball went up saying seven minutes of injury time, I was like, oh, you absolute pricks. And sure enough, the seventh minute of injury time, in goes the Flavio, the, uh, the long-haired Portuguese goalkeeper for Angola, chucks one into his own net. <laughs> ball four draw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fairly extreme, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to apologise to all the people who ask questions because we've been recording for quite a long time already. There's so many really good ones. I'm just going to pick two quick ones now that are fairly broad and I maybe summarise uh, some of the others with them. So, uh, Chimwe Kanyumbu asks, who is the best tactician in football history? Well, the most influential, um, I mean, best is almost impossible to answer because almost certainly it's somebody who was working with some absolute clowns uh, who he managed to get them to a, a, a state of almost mediocrity and we just wouldn't know about it. But in terms of the most influential, I, it's Jimmy Hogan without question. Um, but yeah, he, he influenced uh, Hungary, Austria, Germany, and then all the people who learned from them. So H Hogan, massively influential. Um, the only people I think who even come vaguely close would be Michael slash Cruyff and then maybe Bielsa. But. Okay. Um, and the final one we will take from uh, Usman Iqbal asks, uh, please ask him the books I can read before I start training for a grassroots licence. Just read mine. I don't really care about anything else. <laughs> but I don't even, don't even read them, just buy them. And how, how are they available, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're available in many, many popular bookshops on Amazon and, and other less obscene websites. Yeah, they're in WH Smith, Our Price, Virgin, all the, all the high street ones. I don't ones. think Our Price exists no, anymore. That was, that I was suspect they're not in WH Smith's either. No, but, right, okay. But they will be in Waterson's, I Actually, the, the WH Smith's in King's Cross has got a really good sports section. Does it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, not really good. It doesn't have any of Jonathan's books there. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's that why it's really good. No. Um, I mean, it's like, it's not the Waterstones and Piccadilly, but it's for that. I don't think Smiths are as, as bad as the high street ones. I tell you what, the Waterstones in Angel has an excellent sci-fi and fantasy collection as well. If for anyone who's listening, doesn't care about football. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, attending. Really appreciate sure, it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and as I said to people before, do go and uh, subscribe to the Blizzard. Read Jonathan's books if you haven't already. Uh, watch the TV videos. You know, it's all good. Uh, Alex, thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again soon. <laughs>